the welcome that's been given to you already, especially to students, but to everyone, and thank Colin and uh, the team who've taken part in the service so far. Those are regular members. If you weren't here last week, um, can I say again on behalf of Nietzsche and myself, after, our, after my three-month enforced absence, it's good to be back, and uh, I really appreciate your prayers, and uh, my hand is making slow but sure progress, and if you weren't here last week, you didn't see the graphic x-rays in the children's talk. <laughs> I trust also we've come together to think. When we meet together, this is the first day of the week. It's not an escape from reality, but in order to equip us for the week that lies ahead to live and work and witness for Jesus Christ. Uh, today we come to one of the most difficult parts of the New Testament, indeed the Bible, in Mark 13, and the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke. Uh, it's been a cause for much debate among Christians, a lot of disagreement, it's also been a focus for unbelief. Uh, Bertrand Russell, the famous philosopher who lived at the beginning of the 20th century, in a lecture which was then widely disseminated entitled Why I Am Not a Christian, subtitled An Examination of the God Idea and Christianity, uh, said this, listen carefully. He began by saying, Historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. So I'm not concerned with the historical question, which is a very difficult one. I am concerned with Christ as he appears in the Gospels, taking the Gospel narrative as it stands, and there one does find some things that do not seem to be very wise. And then he gives us some specific examples. Listen to what he says. For one thing, he, that is Jesus, thought his second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time, there are a great many texts to prove this. And among them, he said, was this verse in Mark 13, 31, when Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, apart from his claim that Christ didn't exist and we have no evidence of that, which hardly anyone, even a sceptic today, would believe, there's a strange paradox here. If the Gospel records, as we have them, are not an accurate statement of what Jesus said and what happened, but, as Russell and many claim, are an invention of the Church a generation or so later, why on earth did they include statements by Jesus, which Russell says are so obviously incorrect? Be that as it may, his claim that Jesus apparently believed that his second coming would occur in the lifetime of those who heard him, is one that needs to be answered. And for this reason, and for many more issues arising out of Mark 13, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, as we've already been singing, to help us to understand this. So, I need the Holy Spirit's help, you need the Holy Spirit's help, if we're to understand what it says, but more importantly, to apply it to our lives today. So, let's just pray first of all, and ask for God's help. Our Father in Heaven, we come to you today and as we look at our television screens and listen to the radio and read the newspapers, we see many of the things that are described in this passage happening to us today. We think of the sorrow today in the city of Liverpool with the death of Kenneth Bigley. We think of unrest in Iraq and Afghanistan. We think of people being killed in Egypt on the border with Israel, even this very week. We see many of the events that seem to be foretold here happening right in front of us. And as we read your word, we need special help to understand what it means and how we apply it to our lives today. And I need that help that I might speak clearly, 
and that I might speak not only with word but with power and conviction and with the Holy Spirit and we pray that the glory might go to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ the one who died and rose again is seated at your right hand and will one day return in power and great glory we ask it in that name Amen In 1970, a man named Alvin Toffler wrote what was, was to become one of the most significant books of his generation. The book was entitled Future Shock. If you're from my generation or older, you probably remember the book. I'm not sure whether the next generation does at all. Anyway, Toffler attempted to look into the future and to predict the enormous social and technological changes that were taking place and would occur in the next few decades. Now, his purpose was not so much to predict exact events. If you read the book, he underplays the use of computers and overplays the use of robots, for example. Rather, his plan, his purpose in writing the book was to address how people and societies and businesses cope with change and adapt to it or are submerged to it by it. Here's a quote from him. He says, Man has a limited biological capacity for change. When this capacity is overwhelmed, the capacity is in future shock. And many of his predictions have come true and many people have struggled to adapt to the kind of changes he predicted and suffered what he calls future shock. However, as we continue today our series in Mark's Gospel, which we began way back in January, and God willing, unless Christ returns, we will complete at Christmas time, called the series Following Jesus, I want to suggest that what Jesus says in these verses, the words of Jesus, were far more accurate than any of Toffler's predictions or anyone else's predictions, and when he spoke them, they would have caused his hearers to go into future shock. And it was in order to prepare his disciples and us for what will happen in the future that Jesus spoke these words and the Holy Spirit has preserved them for us to read and study today. So I've entitled this message, nothing very creative, Future Shock, and you'll find it in Mark 13, page 1019 in the Bible. If you haven't got a Bible, it really would help to have one. I don't know if there are any around at the front people haven't got Bibles. Anyone got any spare Bibles? Just pass them around a bit because it's actually quite important to actually be able to look at the Bible uh, when we're going through it and to keep with the text and make sure that we're reading. Just keep passing them around. If you need a Bible, just wave your hand and then someone pass one to you. That's good. Page 1019. Okay, everybody's sitting uncomfortably. Let's make a start. I believe the key to understanding this chapter, and I need to lay some foundations in the first part, then we'll come to the application, alright? The key to understanding this chapter and answering the many questions, such as those that Bertrand Russell raised, are to recognise that these words of Jesus address two different situations. One near at hand, which would face the disciples and their generation, one in the distant, the final future, which will affect everyone. 
And I want to lay that foundation by looking at these two contexts in more detail. Because unless we do, we won't understand their application to us today. And there's stuff on the screen that hopefully will help you. First of all then, Mark 13 has two contexts. The first one is addressed to the disciples and they're the end of their world. That's the wrong picture, it will come up in a moment. The disciples and the end of their world. Now look at the text. The words which Jesus spoke are prompted by a comment made by the disciples as they are leaving the temple regarding the magnificence of that building. Look what they say. Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Verse 1. Now, the temple that was in existence when Jesus spoke these words was the third temple that had been built on this site. If you know your history, the first temple was built by the great King Solomon 900 years or so before Christ. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC and eventually a second temple was built when some of the exiles were allowed to return 70 or so years later they began to build. It took longer than that under Ezra and Nehemiah, their books in the Bible as well. Now, the third temple was built around and on top of this by Herod the Great. It was begun about 2019 BC and at the time of Jesus, 50 years later, it still wasn't finally completed. has echoes with buildings in Edinburgh, but anyway, which are finally completed. Uh, but nonetheless, it was one of the great wonders of the world, a great, great architectural achievement. Now, the Jewish people didn't like Herod the Great, but they did like his temple. Because it was built in the place that God had designated as his own dwelling place where he would meet with his people. The place where the priests offered daily sacrifices and the people came up to celebrate the great Jewish festivals every year. Now, attempts have been made to reconstruct models or pictures of what it looked like and now you get the picture and you can see. Uh, maybe words are better. Listen to what the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus wrote about the temple. He said it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendour and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done with the sun's rays. Then he goes on, but this temple appeared the strangest when they were at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceedingly white. Of its stones, some of them were 45 cubits in length, five in height and six in breadth. That's 50, 60 feet long, 12 feet wide, 18, uh, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide. Each of them weighed around 15 tons. Now, if you've ever been to Israel and seen the remains of the Western or Wailing Wall, that is not the temple. That is just the surrounding bit. It's an incredible structure. So, the disciples' comment about the massive stones, the magnificent buildings, is not at all surprising. But what is surprising, what is absolutely shocking, is the answer Jesus gives to his disciples in verse 2. For it means, if it happens, the end of their world, the destruction of the temple. Listen to what he says, verse 2. Do you not see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. It's no wonder then that the disciples ask Jesus, when will these terrible events occur? How will we know when it will be? Verse 4. 
And Jesus, now sitting, notice, outside of the temple, opposite on the Mount of Olives, the place of judgment, answers that question regarding not only the destruction of the temple, but goes on to describe the devastation of the city of Jerusalem. If you read the parallel account in Matthew and Luke, Luke says, it will be surrounded by armies. So the words of Jesus, I think no one, whatever position you take on this, and I may fall out with a few people here, but just stay with me, whatever position you take, the words of Jesus are addressed specifically here, at this point, to his disciples. It will describe the end of their world. However, if you come to the end of the chapter, it is clear that by the end of the chapter, Jesus is speaking about a far greater event. Notice what it says, the last verse, which applies to everyone, the end of the world. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. That is verse 37. I think it says 31 on the screen. That's my mistake. It should be verse 37. And the event which will herald this will not be the fall of Jerusalem, but the return of Christ. So to summarise, Mark 13 contains two contexts. The disciples, the end of their world, verses 1 to 23. Secondly, everyone, the end of the world, verses 24 to 37. Now, the observant will notice in the verses in brackets, I've put a question mark. And the reason I've done that is because Christians and Bible students disagree on which verses apply to which event. And if you gave me another hour, I could go into detail about all the different viewpoints on this, but it will not be too constructive. But if you want to read something, speak to me at the door and I'll give you a few books to keep you going. The question is, which of Jesus' words apply to the end of the temple, Jerusalem, or which apply to the end of the world? For example, let's look a bit further on in the chapter. Verses 14 to 20 seem to me fairly clearly to be talking about the fall of Jerusalem. If they apply to the end of the world, the return of Christ, what's the point in worrying about your cloak or bothering about whether you're pregnant or not? The tragic events of history tell us that what Jesus predicted took place 40 years later in AD 70 when the Roman general Titus surrounded the temple, Jerusalem and raised the whole edifice to the ground. And those 40 years from when Jesus spoke to when that happened were a time of international tumult. There were wars and rumours of wars. The Parthians, the dreaded Parthians were banging at the gates. There were earthquakes, volcanoes. There were terrible famines in the Roman Empire. And when the, Roman em when the Roman army finally marched on Rome, most people, as they did in the past, didn't run for the hills, they ran into the city because they believed they would be safe inside its walls. And if you read the terrible record, within the walls, there were all sorts of competing groups battling against each other, a bit like you see in Iraq today, only far worse, in one small area, smaller than Edinburgh probably competing messiahs and miracle workers fought with each other as they promised miraculous deliverance and victory over the Romans. One group of zealots desecrated the temple shortly before the end. Many people think that's at least the first reference to what is called the abomination of desolation in the temple, that they desecrated the temple. It's a reference back to Daniel, and we don't have time to go back and look in detail at it. It's recorded 
that some Christians heeded the words of Jesus and they fled to neighbouring Jordan where they stayed in the city of Pella. Now the record of what happened is absolutely terrible. All those people crammed into the city for an extended siege. There are examples of cannibalism, of mothers killing their children and eating them and selling the, selling the bodies for sale. Josephus records that 1.1 million people died within its walls, many of them from interfighting between the different groups. Now, you think about what happened, those terrible events in Russia in Beslan a few weeks ago. Several hundred people died. Now, just try and imagine 1.1 million people dead within the walls and 100,000 captured and carried off into captivity. And the temple was thoroughly demolished. Rumour has it that the Roman soldiers levered all the stones apart to try and get molten gold and metal and silver that that had melted down between the cracks of the walls and the words of Jesus were fulfilled. Not one stone was left on another. Now, the difficult verse in verse 30 therefore seems to me and not everyone agrees with this but it seems to me to apply to the generation to which Jesus was speaking. In fact, the word this generation is used twice in Mark's Gospel referring to the present generation and notice what he says, these things, I think, refers back to verse 4, the initial question. Tell us when these things will happen. And Jesus says this generation won't pass away until these things have happened. When did it happen? Forty years later. Forty years is a biblical generation. Now, Does this mean then that these words have no relevance to us today? They're just of kind of historical interest. And that we only need to conclude the the concluding verses no matter where you make the break. Some make it at verse 24, some make it at verse 31 and so on. Not at all. Listen carefully. I believe that along with many others that these verses have a double reference both to the near future and the far and final future. Uh, David Hewitt describes them in his book on Mark as a double perspective. I think it's quite a helpful picture he uses. He says, like a photographer with a modern camera that is able to focus on two things at once, Jesus focuses on the foreground, the events of AD 70, and the background, his second coming, at the same time. He sees the one as the forerunner of the other, the first foreshadowing the second, In order to understand this chapter, we need to hold on to this double perspective. One more reference, then we'll come to the application. An older commentator, Cranfield, still well worth reading, uh, writes, the divine judgments in history are, so to speak, and this is quite helpful, rehearsals of the last judgment. And the successive incarnations of the Antichrist are foreshadowing of the last supreme concentration of the rebellious of the rebelliousness of the devil before the end. So for us, the fulfilment of these verses is past, present and future. The key to their understanding is the recognition that there is a double reference. Now, that's the perspective I'm taking and I hope it's helpful. With that in mind, let's come to the application. What does it say to us today? If you've switched off with the rest, you can wake up at this point because this is the bit that really counts, that is really important, all right? And you'll notice in this chapter, if you count them, there are 17 commands. And you'll be glad to know I don't have 17 points. All I have is three warnings for us, followed by two lessons. Alright? 
Here's the three warnings. One, don't be dismayed by disasters. Don't be dismayed by disasters, verses 7 to 8. Jesus speaks about wars and rumours of wars, earthquakes, famines. Now, some people read this to mean that these kind of events will multiply and increase as history goes on. And you'll find people saying, you know, they've calculated the number. The difficulty with this is that we don't know of a lot of the events because we don't have mass media like we do today. I think what Jesus is saying is that these kind of symptoms will be present in that whole period leading from his ascension to heaven to his return from heaven. The Bible calls that period the last days. That whole period, however long it is in our time scale. In God's calendar, the final event is the return of Christ. Everything up to that is the last day. So the Lord for whom one day is a thousand years, thousand years is one day. And Jesus says, when this happens, when you switch on your television screen and find out there's another war sprung up, when you look at the screen and see terrible events like earthquakes and famines, yes, we do all we can to help the suffering, but recognise, don't panic. Don't be dismayed by disasters. Here's the second warning. Don't be deceived by imposters. Verse 5, verses 21 to 23. Jesus writes about those who would deceive us by claiming to speak in his name and even to be Christ who has returned. They will be very appealing and beguiling because Jesus says they will perform signs and wonders. So plausible that even God's chosen people, his elect, might be taken in by them other than God's help given to them. Performing signs and wonders. Again, if you know history, there's a particular record of one individual in Jerusalem before the final days, before AD 70, I think it was around 69 or 68, who was such an imposter. And he led us to a whole group of Jewish people and they were all slaughtered by the Romans. And down through the centuries, there have always been people who claim to be Christ or Messiahs and say that Christ has returned. And I have no doubt that many more will appear. What worries me is this. Stop for a minute and think. If someone stood in this pulpit and performed a genuine miracle, speaking in the name of Jesus, how many of you would say it's not absolutely certain that that person is a genuine Christian? I think we live in a very gullible generation. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the end? He says, on the day of judgment, there will be people who appear before him at his judgment throne who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name and mighty works? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. So be on your guard. We live in a biblically illiterate generation. I can say to students, Whatever church you find, if you settle here, we're delighted to see you, but go to a church where the Bible is explained and proclaimed. That's the fundamental. Whether it's Charlotte Chapel or Thies and G's or, or, or whatever it might be, Mungo's, wherever you go, make sure that the Bible is explained. That's the most important thing because you need to be on your guard. The third warning. Don't be discouraged by persecutors. Yes, I know it should be persecution, but I like the word persecutors because it rhymes with the other three and I hope you can remember it, all right? Verses 9 to 13. Jesus says here, and on many other occasions, 
that his followers are not to be surprised by opposition and persecution. He says, expect it, be prepared for it. Be on guard against it. And he says, this persecution will come from civil authorities and religious authorities and even worst of all, it will come even from within families where family members will betray one another at times of persecution. And on these occasions, there's a promise. This is not a promise to preachers that they don't need to prepare. A promise that if you're put in that situation, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. You don't need to worry what you'll say. He will speak through you. Now, I don't have time to tell you. Read church history. Really, if you read the Bible, you should read church history. Because it explains how these wonderful things happen. How Christians, illiterate people, stood before Roman authorities in the arena and declared their allegiance to Christ. So much so that Roman soldiers turned and confessed Christ because they saw how they died. And write it to the present generation. In the last century, I've said it before, I'll say it again, more people were martyred for Christ in the last century, the 20th century, than all the other 19th centuries since Christ put together. Did you know that? people dying for the name of Christ now this gives the, t- this gives the light to these, these people who say to you become a Christian and you'll have a pain free existence and you'll never have any problems this will all be glory glory till you go to heaven Jesus says expect persecution and if you preach the gospel expect more persecution not less these words remind us that we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Many scholars say that Mark 13 doesn't fit in Mark and it was just stuck there and it's out of place. I think Mark 13 is in just the right place because it prepares us for the end of our series, the end of the Gospel, which is it about? It's about next chapter, it's about the sufferings of Jesus and about the disciples who didn't stay awake but fell asleep and couldn't watch and pray. It's about how our Saviour suffered and we follow in his footsteps. Our verse for the year, let me remind you what our verse for the year is. You'll see it on the screen coming up and you should know it. If anyone would come after me, says Jesus, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we're his followers, we should expect nothing less. If you're a student, expect to be ridiculed at the very minimum because you're a Christian. If you stand for Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want a conversation stopper tomorrow and somebody says to you, what, what did you do yesterday morning? You say, I went to Charlotte Chapel, a church in town, and what was it all about? It was about the fact that Jesus Christ could return at any time. I guarantee that will be a real conversation stopper and they'll think you're off your head. Really? But notice what Jesus says. Now we can the important bit. These warnings about disasters, imposters, persecutors, Jesus says, they're the beginning of birth pains. See that? Verse 8. In other words, they're not the actual birth, but they tell you that it's coming. Larry Hurtado at New College, has written an excellent commentary on Mark's Gospel. He says, like the first pains of childbirth, they signal that something important is coming, but they do not indicate how long the painful period will be. The period of birth, from birth pains to birth may be a long one, as in the case of our firstborn, some 36 hours, or it may be a short one. Someone told me last week that someone gave birth in the back of a car on the way to the hospital. But it will happen. There is an event on the way. So in view of this, what are we to do? Okay, we're getting near to the end. Stay with me. It's the final important bit. Final finalist. A couple of bits yet. All right. 
What should our response be? Jesus gives two positive responses in the closing verses. Now, I don't have time. You'll, some of you will say you've not commented on various things. I don't have time to comment in detail on every verse. Talk to you about it later, if you like. Our response. The first is in verses 28 to 31. Be expectant. Yes, the birth pains are painful, but the mother endures them because she knows that a baby will soon come and it will be a joyful occasion and celebration. Jesus changes the picture to that of a fig tree. See, the lesson of the fig tree. Now, unlike the fig tree which was recently withered, if you've been in our series, you remember in chapter 11, verses 20 to 21, as a symbol of the failure of Israel to bear fruit and to be judged by God, this time the fig tree is a picture of fruitfulness and hope. When Jesus spoke these words, the Mount of Olives was full of fig trees. And when Jesus spoke, it was, we know it was springtime because the Jewish festivals at the moment, and the twigs were developing, the leaves were coming out. So Jesus uses this illustration as he looks around him and he says, this is a sign that summer is near when the fig trees will blossom and will bear fruit. And so Jesus encourages his followers. He says, these signs that he's described do not just signal the end of the age, but also the fact that he is returning, that Christ will come again. A, an occasion for great joy and celebration. Verse 29, he is near right at the door. His arrival is near. And the words of Jesus are more certain and lasting than even the world in which we live. Jesus says, Have these arrogant words, unless this is the Son of God speaking, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. Verse 31. In view of this then, if he is near, and the word near is God's near, if he is near, what are we to do? Should we stand around at the door waiting for his arrival? Scanning the horizon? Looking for the signs? No, Jesus balances this lesson with a second in which we're told to be diligent. Verses 32 to 36. And in these, Jesus uses the second picture, the picture of a householder. You see that? Jesus tells a story which would be familiar with this here, it's not quite so familiar to us. Of the owner of a large property or estate who goes away on a journey. Jesus used this on several occasions. He leaves his servants in charge of his house, each one with a special role, the guy at the door, watching, keeping guard, with specific tasks to do. And the lesson is obvious. Jesus himself is the householder who has gone away entrusting the work of his estate, of his kingdom, to his followers, assigning to each one of us the tasks he has given us to do with the gifts with which he has equipped us. And we do so, I stand here preaching. You stand, sit there in the congregation, serving God in whatever capacity. You play your musical instruments. You do your PA work. You do the PowerPoint at the back. You do the stewarding at the back. You, are, some of you are not here, you're teaching children this morning in junior church. We all do so in the light of the knowledge that he could return at any time. Or in the night. In any of the four watches of the night that he describes, the Roman night. So we're to continue to work for Christ. Even in the face of suffering. To preach the gospel, verse 10, to all nations before the end comes. With or even, it may mean, as the angels or messengers, don't have time to go into the text, verse 24, 
same word in Greek, gathering in God's chosen people until Christ shall return. And we do so if we are truly his followers in the knowledge that he could return at any time and therefore we stay alert. We keep watching, but we keep working. His arrival is always nearing God's chronology. But notice what Jesus says. The exact time, the time of his arrival, is unknown. Verse 32. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, but only the, not the Son, but only the Father. Now again, I don't have time to go into this. This is a remarkable verse. For it says that Jesus didn't even know the day. It suggests that at least in his earthly life there are some limitations experienced by Jesus in his incarnation, that he didn't know everything. And if he didn't know the exact day or hour, what do you think of these idiots who are always telling you they can exactly predict it? Absolute nonsense. Don't listen to them. Instead of speculating, we should be working. Yet how many people fail to learn this lesson? Do you remember at the beginning, just one example, beginning of the book of Acts after the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his apostles and, and taught them many things over Pentecost period, 50 days. And you remember what is recorded in, in, in Acts 1? The disciples said to him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What did Jesus say? He said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has set by his authority. Don't waste your time thinking about it. But, Acts 1 verse 8, 7, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, he says, don't spend your time looking at the skies. Spend your time going out into the earth proclaiming the gospel. That's why we are a gospel church. At the heart of what we do is evangelism. Reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, that's why you're here this morning. And if you are a Christian, that's why you're here to send you back out into the student world, into the business world, into your homes, communities. You're equipped with the Holy Spirit in order to be witnesses for Jesus. That is our mandate. Listen again to what Larry Hurtado writes. Servants are not to scan the horizon for the master and then rush about in a panic when they see him coming. Rather, they're to carry out their normal duties. And he concludes, Thus Jesus' words mean that his followers are to go on with their mission, preaching and living for the gospel, ready for the return of their master at any time, so that he will find them on the job. Uh, another good commentary, quoting commentaries from Mark, but I hope you've got one or two at least. Um, Sinclair Ferguson quotes a lovely story from the life of John Wesley, the great Methodist itinerant evangelist. He travelled the length and breadth of Britain preaching the gospel in different places. One day he was asked by someone, Mr. Wesley, if you knew that Christ was going to return tomorrow evening, what would you do? And he got out his diary and he said, I would preach the gospel here, here, here and here, just as I planned to do. See the point? So let me ask you, nearly finished, keep saying this but if you knew that Christ this is serious I'm sorry it shouldn't be flippant if you knew that Christ was to return tomorrow evening what would you do? if the answer is you would rush about in a panic putting things in order sorting out your life straightening that relationship seeking forgiveness for that sin then you need to respond to the message of the householder. Will he find you working or sleeping? Final, final conclusion. 
I'm not sure what games children play today with computers, PlayStation and everything else, but I suspect they probably play some of the games that we played as children. The most popular, of course, is hide and seek. And when I played it, what happened was everybody went off and hid and if you were the seeker, you put your face against a tree or a wall and you counted it to a hundred. Usually one, two, three, twenty-seven, fifty-eight, sixty-nine, seventy-eight, ninety-nine, a hundred. But whatever you counted. At the end of the period, you shouted out in a loud voice, coming, ready or not. Still do that? And that is the final challenge of the last verse. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. Jesus is coming again. And I ask you, if he returns today, will it be a case of future shock for you? There'll be no time as on the occasion of Jerusalem to run for safety. Or to make final preparations. No, Jesus tells us that he will return suddenly, unexpectedly, as a thief in the night, as a picture he uses and that we're to be ready how can you be ready this is the most important bit how can you be sure you'll be ready for Jesus the King coming by making sure that you've repented of your rebellion and put your trust in the King and that Jesus is the King of your life and you're his servant awaiting his coming you're a citizen of his kingdom you're a child looking for the return of the Son and even though life may be tough for some of you at the moment, even though you may see terrible things in the media, we know that this is not the end. The fig tree will blossom. The dawn will break. And Christ will return again. So we pray with Christians down the ages. What do we pray? Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I hope you're ready. None of us here this morning will be without excuse if we are not ready for his coming.